0: Hello and welcome to the Avisa Angle, an Avisa Partners podcast where we analyze the biggest stories from around the world and their impact on business and policy. Avisa Partners is a global public affairs and government relations consulting firm. You can learn more at avisa-partners.com and you can find the Avisa Angle on Spotify, Apple and anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a five star review. I'm your host, Daniel Flesh, coming to you from our office in Washington, D.C. We're recording this on Thursday, February 16th, nearly one year into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the war has revealed a number of things, including one, the use of technology and capabilities on the battlefield that we've not seen before, certainly in their common use. Two is the return of great power conflict with Russia staging a land war in, in Europe. And three, this war suddenly promised to reshape the European, potentially the global security environment. Joining me to discuss this and more and implications moving forward is Pauline Massart. Pauline is a partner at Avisa Partners Brussels office, where she manages strategic intelligence activities, including research for EU institutions in NATO. Previously, she spent over 15 years working in European security and defense, including as head of the European Defense Agency's Media and Communications Unit, and also managed the Friends of Europe's security and defense program. She began her career in government relations at Talis Italia. Pauline speaks fluent French, English, Italian and German, though this conversation will be recorded just in English, and she's a steering committee member of the Brussels chapter of Women in International Security and a co-founder of the Brussels Binder, the open-source database of female EU policy experts. Pauline, welcome to The Visa Angle.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Pauline, so I want to start real quickly, like I mentioned, we're one year into the war just about about 8 days shy. Uh, so on February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine and kind of can you walk us through the last year of the war on the battlefield. What's been happening and certainly moving into the corridors of power?
1: Right. Well, I think uh, the one thing that we can say is that uh, it didn't go as
0: planned for yes. either side.
1: Uh, I think suddenly, uh, certainly the, the Russians expected it to go uh, a lot faster, expected to walk in, uh, do the job and walk back out. this has not happened. Um, we've seen uh, the West, so Europeans uh, and uh, and NATO, uh, really raise the stakes in terms of supporting Ukraine with a variety of capabilities from day one. Um, and suddenly, uh, certainly, as you you were saying earlier, this has uh, reshaped European security, but much more broadly, global the global security landscape.
0: Yeah, you know, at first when Russia invaded, I mean, those thoughts that, okay, how, wh- what kind of fighting chance does Ukraine have? I mean, first off, to be clear also, it's not that Russia wasn't in Ukraine prior to last year, right? In 2014, they initiated this Little Green Men operation to take the Donbass area in eastern Ukraine and, and Crimea as well. So Russia's already had a bit of a foothold there, but they obviously launched more of a mechanized assault in February of last year. Um, and you know you're right. We've kind of thought that Russia would steamroll over Ukraine, but that didn't happen. In Russia, I don't want to call them the paper tiger. Certainly not a very ferocious fighting force. But yet, has shown that they are not as capable as certainly Western leaders thought. And I think you say certainly from the U.S. perspective, you know, one thing that the Biden administration was concerned about is, do we su- you know support Ukraine with arms because? which direction is this war going to take? And I think you saw that from a lot of Western leaders uncertain How much do we get involved and what sort of escalation will that cause on Putin's part?
1: And I think that interrogation is very much still here. But one clear miscalculation that the Americans and a lot of Europeans made was that they expected Russia to collapse quickly, if not militarily, certainly economically. And uh, they expected a change of power. And that did not happen. I remember very distinctly conversations with State Department officials in the weeks running up to the war saying Putin will not last. He will fall, mark my words, one year on. He has not fallen. And we have no idea at this point, I believe, uh, whether he is likely to stay or go.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't see any clear indication there's a threat to his power besides maybe his own health, right? And the the question is, is there someone, is there a Brutus in his inner circle that will stab him in the back, essentially, and say, no, we're going to take this war in a a different direction, likely to cease hostilities. But I think there's been no indication of that. And even though you have, I think I've seen numbers between 500 and a million Russians, at least able-bodied men have been leaving the country because they don't want to go to Ukraine. Still, the Russian fighting machine, you know, carries on and they're talking about new offenses this spring. Which brings us to actually the main topic we wanted to discuss really was it's all about the tanks, isn't it? So well Yeah, go ahead.
1: It, it, it's interesting actually just to come back to, to something that you were saying. It for me this conflict is really marked by lack of clear information, whether mm. because of offensive disinformation campaigns or whether for lack of detailed Uh, clear, objective information as to what is happening. What is happening on the battlefield, of course, on the ground, what is happening in the Kremlin. Clearly, that's an issue for the West. Um, And what's really happening in terms of, you mentioned Russian uh, able-bodied men uh, leaving the country, but it's also about how many tanks have been lost. What casualties are we talking about? How many POWs? So there's a whole series of, Facts that we should have, uh, and that 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 are not available because it's oh so difficult to tell fact from fiction at this point.
0: Right, and on those casualty numbers, real quick, I looked it up quickly, um, and. The only estimates you could find on the Russian side, on the Ukrainian side, and civilians on both sides. Um, civilians, obviously, primarily Ukrainian, but the U.S. estimates over 100,000 Ukrainians, Ukrainian soldiers, have been killed or wounded. Russian, it's over 150,000. Some reports say nearly 200,000. Over 40,000 civilians have been killed, and obviously, we know millions have been dipl- displaced, primarily into Poland, elsewhere into um, Europe. Also, actually, you know, I know you're coming to the United States as well. But this war is—you're right. It's—it's it's, at one point in. One level in this day and age, we have access to a lot of information, battlefield footage. And one of the things about the kind of information or the the psychological campaign that I think either Ukrainians or even some Russians are waging against Russian civilians in some ways is showing, you know, through TikTok or other social media means what it's like on the front lines as a way to, uh, to take a hit at, you know, take a shot at Russian morale. Do they want to keep sending soldiers to this front?
1: The, that propaganda effort is, is is interestingly enough on both sides, and fair enough. I think each side is trying to win the war militarily, but also uh, in, in international opinion and in terms of domestic public opinion, of course. It's clearly important.
0: Yeah, and the, the best, I think, symbol of that is uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukrainian president, Absolutely. who has done Absolutely. his own sort of... You could call it propagandistic if you want to, but his own sort of tour de force in the U.S. He came here last winter, I think November or December. He spoke before he joined session of Congress. He was just in European capitals a week or two ago. I mean, the Munich Security Conference is going on right now as well. Uh, but he's been he's been a great symbol for not only just Ukraine but also for Western Europe or really an anti-Russian front uh, to you know audiences around the world, really in the West.
1: He's been an incredible spokesperson. Certainly his presence in the media has been extremely strong. I've yet to see a truly negative piece about him. Mm -hmm. Um, He's been very present. He's uh, developed his own wartime brand. So certainly in terms of communications, he's been uh, at the top of his game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one thing he's talking about right now are Wings of Freedom. What are those?
1: (sighs) Wings of Freedom. The
0: request for jets. Um,
1: This is interesting because I think a year ago had we heard a request from Ukraine for fighter jets, people literally would have laughed. Um, Today, I'm not seeing any Western leaders laugh, quite on the contrary. Um, We've seen an interesting raising of the stakes in terms of the type of materials that Americans and Europeans have provided to Ukraine uh, early on with uh, anti-tank weapons and long-range rockets all the way to obviously now the provision of tanks. Mm -hmm. even though it's taking a bit longer uh, than expected and and is proving to be a bit more complex. Um, Certainly moving to uh, providing uh, fighters to Ukraine fighter jets um, would be a whole different ballgame. Um, On the one hand, yes, it would uh, risk throwing fuel on the fire, uh, but in addition, um, it would be a real risk in terms of depleting uh, Europeans' own stock. Uh, and this is one of the very real issues that Europe is facing right now, not just with the, with fighters, but also with tanks and with all sorts of other ammunition.
0: Right, so um, really quickly on that point, so what you're talking about is, you know, it's one thing to send Ukraine, small arms, ammunition, etc. It's another thing to send platforms such as tanks or fighter jets or even artillery pieces because those take, obviously, a long time to build. And so the idea is that Western Europe would send... Their, capa- their platforms to Ukraine, but then they'd be depleted. They have to build it themselves, which depends on the, the industrial capacity of each country to actually backfill those stockpiles.
1: Well, actually, um, it, it's not just the major platforms which risk depleting European stocks. Uh, what's interesting is that Russia was extremely quick to move to a war economy and to start producing what it needs to wage this war. Um, Europeans, let's say, so. we seen a couple of pieces in the media about what a war economy is. Uh, I think we we may have, and it's it's a blessing in itself, but we as Europeans have forgotten what a war economy is. We've been at peace for over 70 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly the the industrial capacity isn't there today to mass produce what we would need to fight a war should we need to, and hopefully we won't. Um, But number two, to support Ukraine and provide all the ammunition that it needs. I would remind you of the uh, conflict in Libya, uh, which now seems rather far away, but where there were already warnings by European military leaders about running out of ammunition after three days, and where the Americans had needed to step in to support the Brits and the French. Um, The situation hasn't really evolved in the right sense since. So that's something to bear in mind, and it's not just about the complex systems. When you talk about the complex systems, of course, it becomes a lot more complicated because um, a jet isn't just a jet. It comes, and, and neither is a tank, of course. Um, it comes with very serious training needs, um, but also with a whole logistics and maintenance and support ecosystem. Um, obviously, it's a red line for Europeans to uh, send uh, uh, troops uh, to Ukraine for very obvious mm-hmm. reasons, same for the Right. Um, but so how do you square that circle of making sure that if you are providing a complex system, you provide the means to, uh, to to support that system? And I'm not even going to start about the training. I think there have been some interesting pieces in the British uh, media about that, uh, about what the training uh,
0: needs would be. So do you think that Zelensky, not to try to you know inhabit his mind right now, but is he asking for jets? Is Does he think it's a fool's errand or something? He's certain a capability he wants. But I know the U.S. or the West, I'll speak in general, has provided uh, mm. anti anti uh, anti aircraft capabilities. But yet, if Russia does and say likely to conduct a new offensive this spring, this summer, as media reports again, we're not really sure about the information, but media reports do indicate and such, um, then uh, you, uh, Ukraine, excuse me, will need aerial capabilities, and they, as I understand, are kind of have been burning through. Their aging big, you know, fighter fleet. So, is it yep. something they need? And even if, and is something they certainly need. But do you think they can get it, or what's the you know what's the secondary route there? Mm, so there's a whole bunch of questions in your one question. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Number one, uh, yes, of course, you you need uh, aerial capabilities to, to win a ground war. That's a, just the bottom line. Um, a quick word about this whole major offensive we keep hearing about. Um, Again, we don't know. I think that's the bottom line. Uh, Western leaders just don't have enough, or I, I would hope that those who need to know would know. But the bottom line is we this conflict is, again, marked by a lack of clear information. Mm-hmm. Um, are we likely to really see a major offensive by the Russians? Or, in fact, is their current tactic of dispersed uh, but ongoing offensives uh, tiring out, ultimately, their adversary, something that's going to work and that they're going to keep doing? It's not clear at the moment. Uh, I mean, certainly the war is going on. The war is raging. Uh, it's not like people are sitting there waiting, uh, looking at each other across trenches. Certainly not. Um, so I'm I'm not sure again about that. Um, in terms of the need, yes, yes, they would need it. Can they get it? That's a whole different ballgame. Today, I would say no. Um, how far is Zelensky is aware of that? He's very far from stupid. He probably is aware. That it's a very long shot to get fighters. Um, Is it a way of applying pressure on his European and North American allies to get other types of support? It's possible.
0: Yeah, and actually on that point, so I just saw I think a news report today that there was a formal request from Ukraine to Slovakia for some of their I think their MiG fighters they have. I don't think they have Western fighters, uh, but and so in Slovakia said so like I said essentially. We receive the formal request. Now negotiations negotiations can begin. Not knowing where they'll lead, but they can begin, and maybe that is just kind of the the, the bit of a crack of the of the wall that he needs to actually start getting west the west on board for fighters. And then, but you're 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 right, you're right that you know you might ask for you might ask for something you know on the top shelf to get something on the middle shelf, right? And actually, this from the U.S.'s perspective, this has worked pretty effectively. I mean, Biden early on said, "Oh, you know." We certainly support Ukraine. We'll give them non you know we'll give them helmets or other 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 non um, kinetic means and non lethal non lethal means and, and, and ways to support them, but not really show to Putin that we're really engaging. And then that quickly turned into, okay, we'll give them HIMARS. We'll give them this mobile artillery capability. We'll give them then, okay, but then then they want, you know, Patriot systems. They want a PAC system to shoot down Russian aircraft or larger drones. Not talking about little quadcopters that you get, you could buy, you know, from DJI or some of these larger ones, like a Predator and shoot those down. But oh, wait, there's an issue with how do you train Ukrainian soldiers to do that? Well, Lo and behold, you fly them over to Oklahoma and you train them on those systems. So now it's like, you know, and with the tanks, we've really talked about it, but that's also, you know, the M1 Abrams, really really the M1A2 Abrams, the modern uh, American tank. Uh, it's a very complex system, not that the German Leopard or the British Challenger 2, I think, tanks are not, but also these take training. But can you do it? You know, we, we, we trained Iraqis previously on the Abrams. I don't see why we can't train the Ukrainians right now on that, too.
1: Certainly. Uh, but then you have other issues. Poland, for instance, uh, has offered up 30 uh, old versions of the Leopard 2 tank. Uh But there's an issue there because they need repair and they won't be right. ready. I think the, the latest date that was uh, forecast was April. Um, that's a long time uh, in, in terms of a conflict on the ground. Um, so there are a number of issues. And you were referring to potential Slovakian MiGs. Um, at least Ukrainian pilots are trained for those jets. Right, um, it's a whole different bowl game if you're talking
0: about F-16s, instance. F-16s, right, right. And actually, also, the, I'm I'm happy you know, on a personal level that the U.S. is committing. I mean, it's not that many. It's 31 Abrams tanks to to, to Ukraine. Um, of course, 31 it's a battali- or it's a company. It's a Ukrainian company, I believe, um, uh, of, of tanks. But the delivery of those, I think, is until next year. Which like it's a great That's gesture right. and, you know, maybe they come in handy, it will come in just a pivotal moment next year, but who knows what the war is going to be like in 12 months from now.
1: No, but it's interesting. I think we, we've forgotten, um, and when I say we, I, I refer to Europeans and Americans have forgotten what a war economy is like and what it takes um, to reorient your economy. I think it, it, it should be interesting to, to to look back at some of the lessons from World War II.
2: Absolutely. Um,
1: and, what Churchill, among others, but also, of course, what the Americans did in terms of reorienting their economy to be in a position to produce the ammunition that it needed. But, of course, Europe isn't at war today. The European Union isn't at war. Its members are not at war. NATO is
0: not at war. The U.S. is not at war. Um, and the U.S. is not at
1: war. Yeah. Certainly not with uh, with Russia at the very least.
0: Right. Maybe those balloons are starting something, though, with China. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, I, I saw. I saw the Wall Street Journal. Walter Russell Mead has a weekly column, Global View column. He he talked. He spoke about it, like the Battle of the Balloons. So, exactly. yeah.
2: fantastic. Yeah.
0: Uh, but but right, we're not at a war Either. economy. You know, we're not gearing all of society towards the war efforts. And to your point, neither should we. Nor should we. Should should NATO? Should Europe outside of Ukraine be expected to do that? Because what is a Parisian? Why does the Parisian want to be in a war I economy mean, if France is not at war, or someone from London, or you're, you know, you're in Belgium right now?
1: That's right. At the same time, I think it's interesting to look at how strongly Western public opinion has remained firmly in support of the Ukrainians. I have to be honest; that was my biggest fear at the beginning of this conflict. Um, to my, I, I think my biggest fear was how long will public support for this conflict last at a time, and as a consequence of which, of course, um, energy prices are rising sharply. Inflation is at 10% where I am, for instance, in Belgium. Um, Cost of living uh, is a crisis now across the European continent. So this conflict is costing European people a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet people are still extremely supportive. And the other interesting um, uh, takeaway from this is that obviously this conflict rekindled the transatlantic relationship and has made it stronger than it has been, I think, since the early 50s. And at the same time, it's made it oh so fragile, because of course this conflict is on European soil.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not in Canada or in the US. And so there is a very real question uh, as to you know whom does this impact the most. I mean, I think certainly Poland has been on the front lines of uh, welcoming refugees, of uh, providing effort, uh, providing uh, weapons, of course, and other types of assistance. Um, But certainly this is a European conflict at this stage. Um, And the question is, what happens if push comes to shove? How will transatlantic solidarity fare if things really go wrong?
0: So on that point, I want to focus on the European side for a bit if the transatlantic relationship changes, I'm not going to say improves or decays or anything, but if it changes, what does that look like? And really, you know, what does that mean for Berlin's role, for Paris's role, for London's role, not to take everything, but just what, what does it mean for some of the key capitals uh, in, in, in on the continent?
1: Right. So there's a, there's a very real difference when it comes to national positions in Europe. Um, you know, European... European Union member states have had very different strategic outlooks for a while. And despite a number of efforts and and real progress in terms of uh, coming together towards a a unified position, um, it goes without saying that, you know, threat number one is very different in Vilnius uh, than in Madrid, to give you an idea. Um, Berlin has been extremely cautious. As you know, uh, Germany has a very strong parliamentary control over what happens um, with its military. Everything must be approved by parliament. historical reasons, um, but that is something that can often uh, wreak havoc with European defence cooperation programmes, for instance, with the operations and so on and so forth. And I think that's one of the reasons why everyone was looking um, to Germany. Um, the French are extremely careful um in terms of, um, I know, they've been, obviously, President Macron has been extremely supportive uh, of Ukraine, um, has tried um, to keep lines of communication open with Moscow, but is increasingly careful with that. Um, what's interesting is, is the UK, of course, who, since Brexit, has found itself slightly on the margins uh, when it comes to the EU, but, of course, tried to strengthen its position within NATO, it has historically been one of the of the big players, uh, despite all of its domestic crises. It's, uh, it's it's continued to commit support to Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, be it military capabilities or otherwise. Um, what's interesting is how each of these countries and how they together are also interacting uh, with uh, with the US in all of this, um, and what it's going to mean in terms of what. They buy next and from whom? Because ultimately, this war broke out at a time when European defense cooperation was moving at war speed. I mean, I've been observing the sector for about 15 years now. And if you told me 10 years ago, oh, yeah, the European Commission is going to pay uh, for uh, uh, weapons programs, I would have simply laughed in your face. Today, Mm -hmm. that is a reality. It's slow, it's still at the beginning, but it's a reality. Um, and it's interesting that at a time when we now urgently need weapons, not 15, 20 years down the road with big, long, slow, multilateral programs, but which right. are good for continental unity, um, we hear, for instance, uh, Germany's uh, chief of staff saying, yeah, we've uh, you know massively increased our defense budget. We're going to buy Americans, full stop. For some Europeans, uh, that's a bit of a kick in the teeth because, of course, uh, they were hoping to strengthen European uh, um, autonomy and and sovereignty uh, in in being able to develop European capabilities.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's right. That's another way this war is changing things. And I know South Korea also is becoming a big player in Europe. I know Poland is correct me if I'm wrong, they're, they're purchasing new tanks from South Korea, I believe, uh, other capabilities too.
1: Yeah, there's a whole lot happening. Uh, South Korea has certainly emerged extremely quickly, but also also in the public eye uh, as a real new player in terms of providing complex capabilities um, that previously really were the the, the purview of, uh, of American, uh, French, German, or, or,
0: uh, or British industries. Right, right. And so, I mean, do you see a situation where ties, because the U.S., I mean, to bring China back in, which is, you know, the, the panda in the room, so to speak, I mean, it's it's very obvious that relations between the U.S. and China are escalating. And we might look back at this these spate of balloons that, you know, the U.S. has mustered up F-22 as maybe F-16s to, to shoot down. I think it's the first kill in F-22 is, has, has registered in quote-unquote combat. <laughs> but essentially... Uh, if the U.S. needs to refocus, you know, and we have elections in two years or at the end of next year, I should say, uh, whether Biden wins again or a Republican challenger or even a dem- Democrat, you know, if Biden does not actually run for re-election, regardless, there's still going to be a, cl- there's a bipartisan consensus right now, particularly in Congress, that China is a growing threat and uh, and we need to refocus our efforts on China, not refocus away from Europe. But then again, listen... There, the government and the country can only focus so much attention in so many places. So that means that, well, Europeans have to look out more for themselves. And you need to see other European nations kind of stepping up, like Poland, for example, which has played a very key role, particularly, I mean, it, it borders Ukraine. So almost, almost by, by default, it has to, uh, stepping up and Europeans uh, taking greater control of the, over their own security.
1: Well, what's interesting, uh, besides, uh, beyond, sorry, uh, a potential refocus uh, on China by the US, is actually to look at where Europeans and Americans stand at the moment in the global scene. When it comes to the war in Ukraine, for instance, um, the West is actually rather alone. Uh, we tend to have a, a, best, a very Western centric view of this conflict and think, oh, it's us, the good against them, the bad, and everyone is on our side. Far, far from it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's interesting to see uh, uh, how uh, India is still working uh, with Russia, uh, South Africa is organizing military maneuvers. Um, uh, president Lula recently, who uh, did not necessarily, like, sorry, yes, the president of Brazil. Uh, did not necessarily uh, go along with uh, with, with uh, uh, American plans uh, with uh, uh, in his chats with President Biden, and so it's interesting to see. And, and the same goes uh, in the Middle East, in uh, in Africa. Really, we are seeing uh, first of all a lot of Russian influence, um, and we're seeing either a neutrality or, in fact, a, a outright hostility towards Western positions. Um, and I certainly think that this should uh, call for a, for a refocus on, you know, what happens next? What mm-hmm. does this mean for Europe's position in the world? What does it mean for the West's position in the world? Um, and somewhere along the line, I suppose, is, where are the diplomatic efforts? Where's, where's the diplomacy gone? Don't get me wrong. I have no idea what diplomacy on this issue would look like right now. But where is it? Certainly in the media, we're not really seeing very much the closest that comes to it is the, 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 the most recent train of sanctions that Europe is uh, is negotiating. Um, but I'm not really thinking very much on, on the same thing. And there comes a point where we're going to have to think about what comes next. European leaders are going to have to think about what comes next. Where is Europe's interest? How far is it ally- uh, allied with uh, some of its historical allies? And where is it not? And certainly it'll be interesting to see how the next couple of months um, – on the ground impact that transatlantic relationship. And as you say, as the next two years with the US heading to its next election, how that impacts the transatlantic uh,
0: relationship. Wow, lots to consider. A lot to consider. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that's a great way to end this conversation. I think because these are questions that we can't answer right now. we certainly need to think about, and policymakers should take in consideration. You can't project what's going to happen, particularly in war. Right, At the best laid plans just they don't survive first contact with the enemy. So, but there are steps that the public sector, the private sector, even can take to start making sure that. To create the world that they want to envision, primarily making sure the US and Europe remain close, that support for Ukraine continues, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So with that, Pauline, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, Any last words besides those wonderful, thought-provoking and very difficult, and I'm not going to sleep at night questions?
1: (laughs) Yes. uh, Just to add a quick degree of complexity is to hear what the whole disaster diplomacy is uh you know me to call it um on what's happening in, in after the earthquake in uh, Syria and Turkey mm-hmm. how that is likely to uh influence the power balance uh in particular in terms of in particular in terms of uh, turkey's role in the in acting as an intermediary between Russia and Ukraine if not Russia and uh, some of the NATO allies so I think that's going to be another thing to look out for what happens on this in the next weeks and months
0: well, maybe based on that, I'll have you back on here in a few months' time, and we could see answer some of those questions, see how far we get, and see what the progress of the war is.
1: And then I'll come on with some of our uh, Middle Eastern experts here from our Brussels.
0: Absolutely. That sounds great. Well, Pauline, thank you so much. I'll let you go for now. And for everyone else, we will see you next week on The visa Angle. Take care.